We haven't the overview that the dead have attained. Still, I try to at least record connections. I try to find my way through our daily quarrels, surprises, and small events here on this road. We were home doing pleasant domestic chores on a frozen Sunday in the dead of winter when there was a frantic beating at our door. In alarm, Elsie called me. I came rushing from the basement laundry to see a young man standing behind the glass of the back storm door, jacketless and shivering. I saw that he'd lost a finger from the hand he raised, and knew him as the Ike boy, now grown, years past fooling with his father's chainsaw. But not his father's new credit-bought car. Davin Ike had sneaked his father's new automobile out for an illicit spin and lost control coming down off the hill beside our house. The car slid toward a steep gully lined with birch. By lucky chance, it came to rest pinned precisely between two trunks. The white birch trees now held the expensive and unpaid-for white car in a perfect vice. Not one dent, not one silvery scratch. Not yet. It was Davin's hope that if I hooked a chain to my Subaru and backed up the hill, I would be able to pull his car gently free. My chain snapped, and the efforts of others only made things worse over the course of the afternoon. At the bottom of the road, a collection of cars, trucks, equipment, and people gathered. As the car was unwedged, as it was rocked, yanked, pushed, and let go, as different ideas were tried and discarded, as the newness of the machine wore off, Davin saw his plan was lost, and he began to despair. With empty eyes, he watched a dump truck winch his father's vehicle half free, then slam it flat on its side and drag it shrieking up a lick of gravel that the town road agent had laid down for traction. Over the years, our town, famous for the softness and drama of its natural light, has drawn to itself artists from the large cities of the eastern seaboard. They have usually had some success in the marketplace and can now afford the luxury of becoming reclusive. Since New Hampshire does not tax income, preferring a thousand other less effective ways to raise revenue, wealthy artists find themselves wealthier, albeit slightly bored. Depending on their surroundings, for at least some company they are forced to rely on those such as myself. A former user of street drugs cured by hepatitis, a clothing store manager fired for lack of interest in clothes, a semi-educated art lover, writer of endless journals and tentative poetry, and lastly, a partner in the estates business my mother started more than 50 years ago. At any rate, one such artist lives down at the end of our road, in a large brick cape attached to a white clabbered carriage house, now studio. Kurt Cray, last name correctly written with an umlaut, a vampire bite above the A, is a striking man. Formerly much celebrated for his work in assemblages of stone, he has fallen into what he calls the Zwischenraum, the space between things. Kurt has lost his umlaut to American usage, but he loves German portmanteau words. Sometimes I think he makes them up. But Zwischenraum is real. It is the way I see the world sometimes. Kurt has fallen into the space between his own works and is now mainly ignored. He hasn't done a major piece in years. Often his sculptures incorporate native slate or granite, and to help with the massive project of their execution, he occasionally hires young local men. Cray's assistants live upon the grounds. There is a small cottage sheltered by an old white pine. 
They are to be available for work at any time of day or night. There is no telling when the inspiration to fit one stone a certain way upon another may finally strike. Kurt's hands are oddly, surprisingly, delicate and small. They remind me of a burly raccoon's hands, nimble and clever. His feet are almost girlish in their neatly tied boots, a contrast to the rest of him so boldly cut. I'm always curious about the stones that Kurt chooses for possible use. I inspect the ones he's kept, and I think I know sometimes what it is about them that draws him. He says that the Japanese have a word for the essence apparent in a rock. I ask him why don't the Germans. He says he'll think one up. I suppose that I love Kurt for his ability to see that essence, the character of the rock. Only I wish sometimes that I were stone. Then he would see me as I am, peach-colored granite with flecks of angry mica. My balance is slightly off. I suspect there is another woman, maybe on his trips to New York City, but he has deflected and laughed off my questions. He has implicitly denied it, and I haven't the confidence I cannot bring myself to ask him point-blank. Still, in spite of my suspicions, I am leaning toward him farther farther. Do I write myself? This is not an aesthetic choice. When Davenike was forced to leave home, he did not go far, just up to Cray's, to inhabit the little cottage beneath the boughs of the beautiful unfolding pine. It is a tree of an unusually powerful shape, and I have speculated often with the artist upon the year of its first growth. We are both quite certain it was small, a mere sapling, too tender to bother with, when the agents of the English king first marked the tallest and straightest trees in the forests of New England as off-limits to colonists and destined for the shipyards of the Royal Navy, masts to hang great sails. A large pine growing now was a seedling when the climax growth, the pine canopy so huge and dense no light shone onto the centuries of bronze needles below, was axed down. This tree splits halfway up into three parts and forms an enormous crown. In that crotch there's a raven's nest, which is unusual since ravens are shy of northeasterners, having a long race memory for the guns, nets, and poisons with which they were once eradicated. When Dav and Ike moved in, the ravens watched, but they watch everything. They are a humorous, highly intelligent bird, and knew immediately that Dav and Ike would be trouble. Therefore they dropped sticks upon the boy's roof, shat on the lintel, stole small things he left in the yard and hid them, pencils, coins, and once his car keys. They also laughed. The laughter of a raven is a sound unendurably human. You may know it if you've heard it in your own throat as the noise of another of Cray's favorites, schadenfreude, the joy that rises as one witnesses the pain of others. Perhaps the raven's laughter, the low rasp, sounds cynical to our ears and reminds us of the depth of our own human darkness. Of course, there is nothing human in the least about it, and its source is unknowable, as are the hearts of all things wild. Davenike was bothered, though, enough so that he complained to Cray about the way the birds disturbed his sleep by dropping twigs and pine cones on his roof, which was of painted tin. End over end, the refuse clattered down. Get used to them, was all the artist said to Davenike. 
Craig tells me this the day I bring the mail, a thing I do for him often when he feels he is close to tossing himself into the throes of some ambitious peace. Then he cannot or will not break the thread of his concentration by making a trip to the post office. There is too much at stake. This could be, I know, although he will not admit it, the day his talent resurrects itself painfully from the grief where it has been plunged. I have in mind a perception of balance, although the whole thing must be brutally off the mark and highly dysphoric. He speaks like this, pompous, amused at his own pronouncements, brightening his eyes beneath harsh brows. Awkward, I say deflatingly, maybe even ugly. In his self-satisfaction there is more than a hint of the repressed Kansas farm boy he was when he first left home for New York. That boy is covered by many layers now. There is faked European ennui, an aggressive macho crackle, an edge of Lutheran judgmentalness about, among many things, other people's religions. He says he has none. I can infuriate him easily by observing that all the same he is still Lutheran, a fire-breathing crank lapsed, maybe, but still tearing down hypocrisies, still nailing his theses to the doors of cathedrals. He also descends at times to a strata of ongoing sadness over the not-so-recent loss of his second wife, who was killed on a road out west when her car ran over a large piece of stone. Do you know, Cray said once, that a stone can be wedged just so into the undercarriage, so that when you press the gas pedal the accelerator sticks, and shoots the car forward at an amazing speed. That was the gist of the fluke accident that killed his wife. A high school prank near Flathead Lake, stones on the highway. Her speed increased, says Cray, as she pressed on the brakes.